Thank you, Susie, all you musicians. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shelton Woods. I'm part of the community here. If you're visiting with us, we're really glad to have you here. Our pastor has been away, and he will be back with us next Sunday, so we very much look forward to seeing Brad and Aaron again next Sunday. We've been going through the book of Daniel this summer, and uh, we're going to look at a story from Daniel this morning, but we're going to look at it a little bit differently. We've had a lot already about the historical context of the book of Daniel. I'm actually going to use this story as a launching pad to look at something else in our modern culture. It's in your bulletin. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them, and they drank the wine. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. And then the king wants an interpretation of this message, and so they called Daniel a God-fearing man from Jerusalem. Then Daniel answered the king, who offered Daniel a lot of gifts. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king, and I'll tell you what it means. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel parson. Here's what these words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That very night, Belshazzar. King of the Babylonians was killed, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. There's a famous story you might have heard about Bertrand Russell wrote a very famous essay in the 1920s, Why I Am Not a Christian. He was a staunch atheist, and he was giving a public lecture where he was defending his atheism. A furious woman stood up at the end of the lecture and asked, And Lord Russell, what will you say when you stand in front of the throne of God on Judgment Day? And Russell answered, I will say, I'm terribly sorry, but you didn't give us enough evidence. This morning's scripture is about an individual who is called to account not in the life to come, but in this life. 
Belshazzar didn't have to wait until he died to learn where he stood with God. The message on the wall is that God has weighed Belshazzar on the scales of truth and justice, and Belshazzar has come up short. He has been found wanting or lacking the necessary elements to be accepted by God. Bertrand Russell would like to be King Belshazzar, cosmic attorney, and argue that God cannot condemn Belshazzar because there was insufficient evidence for God. But as we heard earlier in the service, we are without excuse. Creation, history, the Bible, Jesus Christ, especially the life and work of Christ, reveal God. But here's the deal. There are a lot of aspects of our human experience that point us to the truth that there is a personal, good, and loving God behind this universe. Every day, we unconsciously experience things that can only be explained by a living, good God who has designed, sustained, and controlled this universe. And so what I want to do this morning is just briefly look at three daily experiences we have that point that are signposts that Belshazzar also had, as we will see, that leave us without excuse, that make us have to make a decision this morning of what am I going to do with this personal God behind the universe. Here's the first thing. Like many of you, especially those of you who are over 25 years old, there's a day that you remember. I went into work that day pretty early. It was a Tuesday morning. I had a full agenda. And for the first time and only time, my management assistant walked into my office even though the door was closed and did not knock. She only did that once in the 10 years that she worked with me. It was about 8 o'clock in the morning. And she said, Dr. Woods, you have to come out here. And so I went out. It was the morning of September 11th, 2001. And the office television was showing what was happening in New York City. The world was stunned by what happened on 9-11. But you know, there's something that can easily be overlooked about that day. United Flight 93 was 46 minutes into its flight, leaving from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco when it was hijacked and it was turned around heading to Washington, D.C. Many of the passengers on that doomed airplane made phone calls after the plane was hijacked. And the text of all of those calls are part of the 9-11 public revelation record. You can see them. You can read them. They're moving. But here's one thing that should not be ignored. Not one phone call was made to check in at the office. Not one person called about a pending business deal. No one called to check on how much money they had in their bank account. Every call that was made by those passengers, was made to those that they loved, to parents, spouses, partners, 
siblings, children. And the calls are tragic as the passengers believed, rightly believed, that they were not going to survive that flight. And so in their last moments, they wanted to call and connect with the people that they loved. On that date, when planes crashed into the Pentagon and into the Twin Towers, those three planes, there was no great uproar at the loss of three expensive airplanes. That's not the first thing that was said. Oh, these poor machines, we've lost three airplanes. Our hearts were broken not because of the loss of buildings or machines, but we were paralyzed with grief due to the loss of human lives. That people matter most and that we deeply love people in our lives is something that we are rarely conscious about, but it bubbles to the surface when we are in crises. One passenger on flight 93 didn't have a phone and so just picked up the telephone on the seat back in front of him. He was only able to get the Verizon operator and just had this message. In case I don't make it through this, would you please do me a favor and call my wife and my family and let me know how much I love them. And it is the Christian story that asserts that the most fundamental reality we live in, in this personal world, is that we seek and we enjoy deep personal connections that can only be explained if there is a personal God, a good God, a loving God behind this reality. There was no one on the plane that made a call that sounded like this. I may never see you again, but you know, at the end of the day, we are just random atoms and molecules, and our feelings are just a mixture of chemical reactions. There was, there was no call like that. No, we know that we love, that humans are more valuable than buildings and machines. And this is true because behind this universe is a personal God, not a force, not just molecules, but a person. You remember C.S. Lewis said, you are never speaking to a mere mortal. We know that we are not in love with someone who is just a random mixture of matter. And you're not valuable due to accomplishments or even how you feel about yourself. In fact, no matter how we feel about our past or present, the Christian story claims that our meaning and value are rooted in a personal God who has made us. And if we are in Christ, God is shaping us into something more beautiful than we can imagine. And if we ever succumb to the feeling that we are damaged, then we are all damaged. But if we think that we're damaged beyond repair because of the things that we hide from people, remember that our value is truly found in being made in God's own image. Nothing else, not your looks, not your wealth, education, or anything else our bended culture puts in front of us should define our worth. Often we hear an artist or an actor or an author say things like this, I'm only as good as my next painting. I'm only as good as my last movie. I'm only as good as my last book. And we often mistakenly feel, I'm only as good as my last 24 hours, my last seven days. But our value isn't measured like we measure buildings and airplanes. Our value is we're made in the image of a person behind this universe.
Do you know that those who do not believe in God are left with the task of creating their own meaning? And if you do not believe in God today, that's your task. It leads to chaos and despair. In 1992, one of our nation's Supreme Court justices, who just announced his impending retirement, presented the American gospel in the Supreme Court decision when he wrote this. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. All that Justice Kennedy was doing in writing this was parroting what the atheists Bertrand Russell and the existentialists Sartre Camus, what they wrote. Dostoevsky rightly noted, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. As a basic example of this, let me take this pen. If you're having trouble following me this morning. If this pen had a mind and would speak to me, you've got to use your imaginations this morning, and would say, Sean, you know, I think I'd like to be a pig. And I would say, that's nice. But the person that made you, made you to write, to assist in signing documents and writing letters. And the pen would reply, well, Sean, I'd I'd actually rather be a pig. I'd like to oink. Uh, I can see myself taking mud baths every day, eating slop. You know, we may find that a little bit funny. But according to Bertrand Russell and Camus and the others, That is exactly what we must do if we reject a personal God. We must, with our finite brains and our finite time here on earth, create some kind of justification for us to be around. How different the truth is when we hear it from our African brother, St. Augustine, who said, Oh, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself. That's why I'm here. That's what life is about. Some people can try and decide if they want to be something else, but we are image bearers. That's your value. It is for this reason that we turn to those who mean so much in times of our struggles. We have a God of love who has made us personal beings who also can deeply love. Did King Belshazzar know this? Did you notice in the reading of Scripture how many times the words wives, concubines, nobles? He wasn't there just drinking by himself that night. He wanted a community. He wanted to be around other people. And the reason we want community and love is because it is God's signpost to us saying, I'm here. I made you that way. He enjoys the banquet. Jesus is also a fitting truth of a loving personal God. His best friend wrote this about him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
All things were made by him. Nothing was made that he didn't make. The word became flesh and lived among us. And we saw him, the son who was full of grace and truth. God became flesh. God could only become a person. He couldn't become a mule. He couldn't become a whale. He became a person because there is a personal being, not a force, behind this universe. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that the greatest criticism of Jesus is that he took time for those that we think uh, we shouldn't have time for. The weak, the mentally ill, the blind. Because he knew the worth of every person. He knew that there was a personal God behind every human being. And in him we live and move and have our being. Second universal human experience is our attraction to what is good. This will be a lot briefer. We want to be seen as good. Isn't that strange that we want to see, be seen as good when the most memorable characters in movies are bad people? I was thinking of some of them. Lord Voldemort, Hannibal Lecter, Sauron, Nurse Ratched. Oh, good old Nurse Ratched. Darth Vader, Freddy Krueger. We are fascinated by evil characters, but at the end of the day, we want goodness. People who are accused of not being good or doing something wrong often take great pains, maybe you can see yourself here, I see myself, to argue that we really are good at the end of the day. And there's reasons for things that happen. Let me give you an example. Here's a conversation between Jay and Luke. Jay says, hey, Luke, what you did was wrong. And Luke says, yeah, I know, but I don't really care what's right or wrong. And Jay says, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you did. Luke says, yeah, well, I'm not believing in right or wrong anymore. And Jay says, oh, I'm sorry, my, my bad, my mistake. That's not how our conversations go. We are constantly trying to show that we aren't really that bad. And throughout history, no matter where you go, there are values and virtues that point to a good person, somebody who is selfless, caring, generous, quick to forgive, faithful, trustworthy, kind. These are celebrated virtues. I want you to think a little bit here. The only way there can be good, the only way, is if there is a standard that points to goodness. One of the so-called new atheists, Christopher Hitchens, penned a book which is now kind of famous called God is Not Great. But poor Hitchens, he gives it away. He gives his whole argument away on the cover of his book because the full title of his book is God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Well, you can only poison something that's good. As we turn back to Belshazzar, how does this idea of goodness fit in this story? Fascinating thing as you read through this chapter. Not one time does Belshazzar argue with God. 
when Daniel says, the gig is up, you've been weighed in the balances, and you don't measure up to goodness. You don't find Belshazzar arguing and saying, no, no, really, you need to look at all the money I've given away to poor people. Belshazzar keeps his mouth shut. Confronted by a perfect God, Belshazzar knows he can't measure up to perfection. I would imagine that many of us have the same sense of inadequacy if we're honest with ourselves. Don't measure me by my past week. Please don't. Our protests of goodness melt in the face of a perfect, just, and loving God. So we remember a famous encounter Jesus had in Mark chapter 10. There was a I believe a lawyer who came to Jesus and actually went on his knees before teacher uh, Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There he is on his knees coming before Jesus saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And remember, Jesus answered the question with a question and he says, why are you calling me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to start with goodness, you need to go behind the person who made this universe. He is the essence of goodness. Did you notice Jesus didn't say, don't call me good? Jesus didn't say that. He said, no, 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 don't don't call me good. Only God is good. He asked the question, why do you call me good? He wanted the man to say, because you're God. And then there's this final thing. Humans experience and find great meaning in beauty. Plato, Dante, Aquinas, among many other thinkers, describe beauty as a greeting. As a greeting. One noted writer claimed that one, at the moment one comes into the presence of something beautiful, it greets you. Have you ever said to yourself, have you ever been somewhere where you say, I could stay here forever. (laughs) I could be here forever. Haven't we experienced an almost transcendent experience while looking at the ocean, scaling to the top of a mountain, looking at a canyon, watching a river rush by us, hearing the wind in the trees, Am I the only one so captured by the beauty of music in a song or album that I keep playing it over and over and over and over again? My poor wife. She says, you have an incredible tolerance for repetition. (laughs) Or the beauty of a piece of art that you put on your wall and you can look at it every day and it doesn't get old. There's something that moves us beyond ourselves. Or a movie that mesmerizes you. Or a book so beautifully written that it takes you to another place. It's what the psalmist is alluding to when I consider the heavens, the stars, the flocks, the animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, those that swim. How majestic is your name in all the earth. We have an innate Drive that makes us enjoy things of beauty. 
Why are there annual awards? Why is there a Pulitzer Prize for writers, Oscars for actors, Grammys for musicians? Because we want to celebrate beauty among us. Say, well, that's easy for you to say you're a white middle class man who has money to enjoy beauty, who's not in the middle of a war in Yemen or Afghanistan. But it is not just a middle class person in an affluent culture and society that loves beauty. It's every experience of every human being. C.S. Lewis, somebody asked him in the middle of World War II, how in the world can you be interested in literature and art in the midst of this? C.S. Lewis said this, if men had postponed the search for beauty until they were secure, they would have never begun their search. But the ancients wanted beauty now and would not wait for the suitable moment that would never have come. The hunters and gatherers, they painted on walls. They wanted beauty now. On Friday, May 12, 1780, the American Revolutionary Army experienced its greatest defeat against the British in Charleston. At the time, one of uh, the founding fathers of the United States, John Adams, was actually in Paris doing diplomatic work. And he, on that Friday, he wrote a letter to his beloved wife, Abigail. And in this letter, he, it's worth reading. He says, man, you should see all the beautiful art here, but I don't have time to go see it. And he ended the letter with these words. I must study politics and war so that my sons can study mathematics and philosophy, geography, and agriculture. And they must study these things so that their children, our grandchildren, will have the right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, tapestry, and porcelain. Our encounter with beauty tells us that there is a master artist who gives us glimpses of beauty. He is that personal God. Why are there billions of galaxies, trillions of stars, so many kinds of frogs, so many kinds of butterflies? Only a God who loves beauty would make such things. And if we reject God, and if you reject God, then the only response to this beauty is what Albert Camus says. And what he said is, Beauty is unbearable. It leads to despair because it offers us a glimpse of something that we would like to hold on to, but we do not have that consolation. Beauty is unbearable. It's not real. It's a lie. It's chemicals, random atoms. We're lying to ourselves when we look out at a vista and it takes us to another place. When we sit in a movie mesmerized, it's all lies. There's nothing, nothing personal behind that. G.K. Chesterton noted, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. And this is played out beautifully in the story of Belshazzar from the very first verse. 
This story is him drinking wine and they're having good wine and they're having a good time. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You need to see these beautiful cups that I got from Jerusalem. Wait here, wait here. Bring them in. Look at the beauty, the art of these cups that came from Jerusalem. The gold and the silver. Somebody needed to ask him, why are you appreciating this beauty? But as I close, somebody should ask, the greatest argument against believing in a good, loving, personal God is, have you read the newspaper lately? Have you looked at CNN lately? Have you looked at the pictures coming out of Syria? Do you know how many children die of diarrhea every single day? This world is much more of a tragic comedy. The rich prey upon the poor. Children die in war. And what about me? I am so messed up. I can't seem to get on track. Kind of like Bruce Springsteen, two steps forward, uh, one step forward and two steps back. But if God didn't care about you, about Belshazzar, he wouldn't have put these signposts in place to draw us back to him, to show us that life only makes sense when it is about him and not us, and that he calls us to enter a restored and personal relationship with him through Jesus. The noted Boston College professor, Dr. Peter Kreft, author of 95 books, once said, the gospel is the most beautiful story in the history, and the life of Jesus is the story of the most beautiful person, the most perfect person, If there are those who say God is not good or loving because of the evil in this world or the heartbreak that we see in our own lives, it's important to know how much God does care for you and for this world. Because the way God is putting this world and us back together was by taking the most beautiful thing that ever existed and crushing it and killing it. So that Isaiah looks forward at this beautiful son of God and says, this is what happens to him. He had no beauty to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by humanity. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. God became man because all of us have been found wanting on the scales of God's justice. The best news, the good news, the beautiful news is that because he wants us to know him, to find meaning in him, he has sent his son. I pray that we will all find our rest in him. Amen. Let us pray.
Our Father, we thank you for the precious gift of life, for the love, goodness, and beauty that points us to you, to our way back to you, to our home. Thank you for so loving this world that you would send your one and only son to not only live among us, but to take our sins on himself. The most beautiful person, the most beautiful being, crushed. Please plant these truths deep in our hearts so our relationship with you will grow to new heights because it is in the beautiful good name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.